welcome to Walk in the Truth podcast. This season of messages takes us through some of the great comeback stories in the Bible. Pastor John Metter of Cross City Church will show us how God can take any situation in any life and bring hope and victory out of hardship. These messages will inspire you to trust God in your own challenging seasons. Looking at God's not done with you. That's an encouraging title to me, God's not done with you. And today the message title is called Saying Yes to God out of the book of Jonah. So if you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Jonah today, Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And as you're finding the book of Jonah, let me just uh, open up by simply saying I have lots of conversations with people who say no to God instead of saying yes to God. Sometimes there are things that um, God has specifically told them to do, and they said, you know, I just don't want to do that in my life. At other times, people that have said no to God talk to me about the fact that they read something in the Bible that they were to do or not to do, and they disobeyed, and they found themselves far outside of God's will. In either situation, when they talk about that moment of disobedience, which often turns into a season of disobedience, they talk with a lot of pain and a lot of heartbreak, and a lot of sadness and regret over saying no to God. Recently, I talked to a a woman that uh, I call Angela. That's not a real name, but she is someone that told me about her story. And she told me about being angry with God because of the loss of her husband. Didn't feel like God intervened to save his life. And as a result of that, she was angrier and angrier with him and began to go further and further away from God. As she walked into the details of her life, there was a lot of pain even on her face at being so far away from God for so long a period of time until finally she came to the place of saying, okay, God, I'm going to have to come back and trust you because being away from you is worse than being close to you, even if I don't understand why what happened happened. And her story is one, just like Jonah's, if it's always best to say yes to God, never good to say no to God. So let's stand together and look at Jonah chapter 1. We'll read the first four verses, and then we'll come back and look at other chapters in the book of Jonah as we walk through it. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Now, we'll pause there and come back to what happens in that storm in just a few moments. Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, help us see ourselves in Jonah's shoes, but also help us see how the story could be different if we are to say yes instead of no. Father, I pray that this Old Testament prophet will be an incredible example to us of how not to respond to you. And Father, I thank you that you're a gracious God, a loving God, in the same way you demonstrated your compassion for Jonah and for the city of Nineveh. You show your compassion for us. Help us to respond to your loving kindness and your tender mercy and your compassion. And I ask this together. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Please be seated if you would. Now, some prophets are known for their message primarily. Obviously, if you walk through the Old Testament, you see the message of Isaiah or Jeremiah. 
message of Malachi. It's very, very clear what they're saying. Jonah's not known best for his message, but for his example, but not the good example. He's known best for being a bad example for how you respond to God. I mean, his life is a car wreck compared to every other prophet in the New Testament. In fact, in the Old Testament prophets, nobody stands out quite like Jonah does when it comes to how he disobeyed God. And at the same time, the Bible gives us the story of Jonah's disobedience in a book that's filled with the compassion and the loving kindness and the mercy of God. So you've got all these things going on in the book of Jonah. And it says so much to us about how we ought to be responding to God. Basically, if you get to the heart of the book, the heart of this book is specifically about telling other people about God's love and his redeeming ways. But also, it's about saying yes or no to God. Today, I I hope you'll come to the place of seeing where you are compared to Jonah in this saying yes or no to God. Now, I'm going to approach this a little bit differently today than I normally do. I'm going to approach this passage by asking the question, why should we say yes to God? Say, wait, Pastor, isn't the theme of the book why to say no to God? And I think you're going to see that, yes, the theme of the book is why does someone say no to God and what happens when you say no to God? But I'm going to approach it from the uh, angle of you ought to be saying yes to God just like Jonah should have said yes to God. We don't often see the blessing side of that, and I hope that we can see it just a little bit today and to see what God is up to in the big picture when we think it's all just about us. So for for reason today to say yes to God, first of all, we say yes to God because his direction is always best. God's direction is always best. Not good, not better than, but best of all options that are in front of us. Now we open up with chapter 1, verse 1, and I read it again. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Uh, Jonah knows exactly what God is doing. He knows what this is about. This is about Jonah taking the message of a loving, compassionate God to a wicked, evil city that desperately needs the message. It's really about God's focus on people who are wicked and far from him. It's really about God's love for people that are so far from him they have no idea how to get to him. And God's compassion is being poured out in that direction. In fact, later on in the book of Jonah, he actually says this in chapter 4, verse 2. He says, Lord, I didn't want to go because I know you are a compassionate and a gracious God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. And basically said to God, I don't like those people. And I know that if I went and preached to those people, they would repent and you would rescue them. And I didn't want that, God. I didn't want that at all. Now, I wouldn't want to be best friends with Jonah. I don't know about you, but he's not my kind of guy. He has no compassion. He has no grace. He has no love for people that he literally hated. He hated the Ninevites. He wanted judgment upon them. If you knew something about the Ninevites, you might tend to agree with him just a little bit. But at the same time, Jonah knew it was God's best for Jonah, for the Ninevites, and for all involved that he obey God. God had in his mind the hundreds of thousands, even millions of people in the city of Nineveh that needed desperately to hear what the compassion and the loving kindness of God is all about. And if Jonah had have immediately gone, and he ultimately did go, 
then they would have found life and hope and forgiveness and repentance. But Jonah didn't want that to happen. Now, if I can make this kind of personal today, let me just say that of the hundreds and thousands of millions of people around you, if God is wanting to use you in some way to impact them positively, either by your message or by your example or by your lifestyle or about your decision, wouldn't it be best for you to consider the whole picture instead of just saying, no, I don't like them. I don't want to go. Jonah didn't want what God wanted him to do, and he ignored it all, and that became the disobedience that caused God's discipline to kick into gear. And also, that's what disobedience is for us, isn't it? We know what God wants, but we don't want to do that. It's not our preference. It's not what we like. We're not really thinking about anybody else at the time. We're simply thinking about us, and we're saying no to God because we don't want it to happen that way for us. If I can go through the reasoning that Jonah must have been having in his mind, it was all about the Ninevites or me. And he chose Jonah. He chose himself. And we often do the same thing. My family or me. My community or me. My workmates or me. My neighbors or me. That's what disobedience is at the heart. Instead of looking at the whole picture of what God wants to be doing in our lives, we're looking at our lives, which is what Jonah was doing. And just like Jonah, we're called to bring a redemptive message to the people all around us. But instead of God's plan, Jonah did his plan, and it wasn't best. And we can see later on that it could have been the best possible plan. Now, I know that you realize, just like I do, that we live in a, in a wicked world, in a wicked city, and we're reminded of that all the time. And I think it'd be important for us as the church of Jesus Christ, as followers of Jesus, as conveyors of the gospel, that God is always going to be positioning us so that when we obey him, we have opportunity to shine light in dark places, to shine light in dark workplaces, to shine light in dark neighborhoods and so forth. And so when God asks us to obey him, whatever else it is, he may have in mind someone else besides just us at receiving the benefit of obeying him. Keep that in mind. That's Jonah's life. That's our life to a very large degree. We are conveyors of the message of God. We're ambassadors of Jesus Christ, just like Jonah was called to be an ambassador of God. So why should we obey God? Why should we say yes to God? Number one, we should say yes because his direction is always best. Number two, we should say yes to God because the detours are never good. The detours are never good. Have you ever experienced a detour in your life from obeying God and all of a sudden you realize some days or weeks or months in that the detour is not a good place to be? Would you raise your hand if you've had some bad detours in life? I hope that you'll remember some of those. In fact, I hope you'll feel some of those same feelings and emotions you had when you were wandering from God and you were on a detour and you were realizing I'm getting further and further away from God with this detour. Where did I go wrong? Well, you went wrong by saying no to a plan God had for your life, a direction he had for your life. You see it spelled out in verse 3. Look at what it says about Jonah. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. To me, that's the most significant line there in that, in that verse. From the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. It's always like this when we disobey God. We always go down. 
We always pay for it on our own. We always go from the presence of the Lord, not to the presence of the Lord. What a wreck this is in his life. When I was in high school, an enterprising principal found a car that had been totaled because of drunk driving. It was a local story, so everyone knew about it. And he took that car, he towed it, left it in front of the front door of our high school near the office where everyone came in and out during the course of a day in that high school. And we knew the story, so it was a vivid reminder of what would happen if we were drunk drivers. And his message was very, very clear. If you choose to do this, that could be one result of your life. And I mean, it was unforgettable to see that wreck. And truth is, Jonah's life is like that wreck. He simply totals his life out in that short period of time until God finally brings him back to obedience. But the detours are awful. It's like one collision after another in his life, and the detours are never worth running from God. Look at what Jonah did in his life. First of all, it says he ran to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. That's 2,500 miles opposite where he was supposed to be going to Nineveh. Over and over, the Scripture says he goes down, down, down. Never does he go up. And that's a play on words. That's just a reminder of how bad of a deal it really was for him. But again, the greatest thing is he was running from God's presence, from the presence of the Lord, is twice in that verse. That line is important. And he's lost his mind because he's trying to run from the presence of the Lord, even though he's a prophet and knows that God is everywhere all at once. Now, you know, doctrinally speaking, that God is omnipresent. You know what that means, don't you? It means that there's never a moment in your life where God is not present somewhere around you. He's ever-present. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. Now, there's another sense of the presence of God that is more like the manifest presence, where we can realize that He's there. We can sense He's there, where we sense His conviction, where we understand what He's trying to communicate to us. And what Jonah was running from was that intimate presence of God that allowed him to hear in the first place, rise and go to Nineveh. So he knew how God spoke, and he was running from that manifest presence of God, trying to get away from that omnipresence of God. In Psalm 139, we have a great reminder from the psalmist, where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will take a hold of me. Let me just remind you today, you can never fully get away from the presence of God, and that's a really, really good thing in your life. No one can carry you away from the presence of God. You cannot run far enough to be away from the presence of God, but you can be away from the presence that's recognizable, the presence that's communicating with you. You can be far, far from knowing what He wants in your life. You can be in a season of confusion and doubt. You can be in a season of silence where you're not hearing God say anything because you've chosen to move far away from Him instead of running to Him. That's part of the detours that are normal in the life of someone that says no Sorry, to God. I had an old friend years and years ago who, who said this. You know, if you're, if you're not walking with God and His Word and obeying Him day in and day out, after one day you know it. After two days, your family knows it. After three days, everybody knows you're moving away from the presence of God. And its point was, you're never sensitive to Christ. You're never sensitive to the Lord when you're intentionally walking in the opposite direction. And the only reason we really do that is because we're prideful or we're stubborn. Prideful in the sense of saying, 
uh, I think I have a better plan, or stubborn in the sense of saying, I just don't want to do that plan, God. And I wrote this uh, in, in my book, and I really believe it's true. Pride and stubbornness are twin devils. They urge each other on. The pride urges on the stubbornness. The stubbornness urges on the pride. And for long, we find ourselves moving like Jonah, far, far away from the presence of God. When I had the conversation with Angela, who told her story, I asked her, why did you keep running? And she answered the fact that she was so angry, so frustrated, that she just didn't want to deal with God. She didn't want to come back to God because Things weren't working out the way she wanted them to work out. I've been away from the presence of the Lord like that. Most of you have been away from the presence of the Lord like that. And the detours that we take when we go through those times are not worth the destination we're on. But if you're proud or if you're stubborn, you're going to experience detours like this where you find it hard to hear God and hard to understand what he wants of your life. You know the old line. We've, we've said it before many times. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you want to pay. And that's true. Somebody in the room today would say, nope, that's what's happened to me. That's why James, in James chapter 4, verse 6, says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Man, I don't want to be in any game where God is opposed to me and I'm opposed to him. And I don't think you do either. We want to be on God's side. We want to be following God and doing what he's told us to do. So here's a good reason for you to say yes to God, and that is the detours are never good. Then number three, very close to that, is our discipline is always difficult. Our discipline is always difficult. Here's what the Bible promises you. If you are a child of God, the promise of Scripture is that as a good heavenly father, he will discipline you. If you're out of his will, you say, is that a good God? Oh, it's a good God and a good father that disciplines us. We look around our culture today and we see, sometimes we see some, some uh, lawlessness among a next generation. And we say, where are their fathers? And the implication is those dads ought to step up and help those kids understand right and wrong and what's good and what's bad and what's wicked and what's, what's good. We, we need fathers to do that. Well, we have a heavenly father that is always on time and always interested in helping us be in the right place in life. And when we run from God, the discipline is going to come from God the Father. And Jonah is a pretty intimidating picture of how God might discipline our lives. It might be one of the most detailed set of circumstances of how God disciplines his children that we can find in the Scripture. And, of course, you know what the story is. You know how it unfolds. So as you jump over to verse 4, you see, first of all, that God sent a storm. What does it say in verse 4? The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. Now, you can't identify with this at all if you've never been deep-sea fishing and never been deep-sea fishing in a storm. Has anybody ever been deep-sea fishing before? Would you raise your hand if you've been off the coast on a boat somewhere? Have any of you been in a storm off the coast in a boat? Would you raise your hands as well? And has that been one of those situations where hurl is a good word in the context? <laughs> the Lord hurled a storm. I remember an experience I had years ago. A group of guys who were part of the discipleship ministry, we went to uh, off the coast deep sea fishing, rat snapper fishing. 
And uh, there was a boat that was 110 foot long. There were 90 of us men on that boat. And most of us lived in the Dallas-Fort Worth region, which means we'd never been in a wave bigger than a lake could generate, right? <laughs> so we're on this boat. We're 50 miles off the coast. We don't see land anywhere. And all of a sudden, a storm comes up. And all I could see was sea, then sky, then sea, then sky. That's all any of us saw for about an hour. And I'm telling you, the word hurl applies to that particular boat <laughs> at that particular time. I mean, it was one of those moments where I couldn't wait to get back to land. And most of us kissed the ground when we got back to land. Now, Jonah's was in a storm, except this storm, he's not sure he's going to live or not. This is a storm that doesn't just spring up. God sent this storm. And the only one who really knew that God sent this storm was Jonah. He was fully aware that all the discipline that was happening was happening because of his disobedience. And what was going on in that boat was so frightening that even the seasoned sailors were believing that the, the ship was about to break up. And they were wondering, what must we do in order to be rescued? In fact, it's the sailors, it's the, it's the godless pagan sailors that are crying out to whatever God they can while Jonah is ignoring what's happening all around him. The more I read about Jonah, the less I like this guy. I mean, he's a bad deal. So God sent the storm, and everyone was suffering. Let me just say this, even though you see it in the text yourself, when we disobey God, others suffer too. It's not just you that goes through the pain. It's not just you that goes through the heartbreak and the distance from God. Often it's those closest to you. In this case, it was just a group of innocent sailors that didn't have any idea who Jonah was at the moment. They were going through the difficult time as well. I like to say it like this, disobedience never stays in its own lane. It wanders and crashes into innocent travelers on a whole other journey. Why do we think we can do it? So God sent the storm as a form of discipline for Jonah. And then the Bible says in verse 17 that God appointed a fish. God appointed a fish. I love the word appointment here because the word appointment says a great deal about how this fish knew where Jonah was and what the fish was supposed to do. And there's nothing random about the word appoint. In the Old Testament, that original language tells us that God specifically called the whale to go do the deed of swallowing Jonah. Now, we sometimes will argue about the idea of a fish swallowing a man. Certainly, we don't doubt that a whale is big enough to swallow a man, but we don't hear of it happening often, even though there are some historical examples apart from Jonah. But, but here we have a prophet who writes the book itself and who, from his own perspective, describes what's happening in vivid detail, and it gives us authenticity to the whole story. So I want you to look in chapter 2 for a moment. And here's what it says about what's going on with Jonah. Chapter 2 begins by saying that Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And he said, and then he gets into first person statements, I called out of my distress to the Lord. He answered me and I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. So Jonah's recording this, and he's saying, this is what I did. Verse 5, water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Again, specifics. Look in verse 7. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. What a description of prayer. 
at this point you're wondering, why did you take so long to remember the Lord? But there he is, remembering the Lord and praying. And then in verse 10 it says, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. I just love those sequence of verses because it says so much about how specific Jonah understood God acting in discipline in his life. And I suspect you and I know that too. When you go through discipline, you, you normally know this is not chance, this is not random, this is not just some circumstance. I'm away from God, and God is doing something to bring me back. And maybe you feel like you're sinking, and maybe you feel like weeds are wrapped around your head. Maybe you wonder, why am I waiting so long to call out to God? But somehow our pride and stubbornness keeps us in that place of that sinking and that drowning and that being away from the presence of God so long until we finally think there's no other hope but to reach out to God. Literally, Jonah waited until there was no other hope for him to reach out to God. And what I'm saying to you today is you don't have to wait that long. And aren't you glad that at any moment you can turn to God and say, God, I've had enough now. I, I think you're going to win this battle. I think in the end I'm going to have to say yes anyway. So, so I'm going to kind of let go of my pride, and I'm going to lay down my stubbornness, and I'm going to call out to you. And that's a key moment because Jonah is calling out to God. And when Jonah calls out to God in verse 10 of chapter 2, we are reminded that everything God is doing is not just discipline, but it's also grace. Please understand that discipline is grace. Discipline is grace. When the whale swallowed Jonah, it's certainly discipline, but it's God's grace because God stops Jonah from going further than he already has. It's not the worst thing God could have done. God could have let him die in the depths. God could have let him run further and further away from the presence of the Lord and prolong not only Jonah's own reunion with God, whatever reunion that might have been, or cut the Ninevites from coming to faith through Jonah's ministry. I mean, God could have let something worse happen, but he didn't. It's grace because God stops Jonah. It's also grace because God brings him back the whale puts him back to the place where he should have been in the first place. It's also grace because God is still going to save the Ninevites, even through that disobedient prophet, God's still going to be able to bring his message to a group of people that are so lost and so dark, they have no other hope than the mercy of God. It's all, it's all grace. Pain is grace. The whale is grace. And we rarely see lives we rarely see in our lives when we see whales or storms, we rarely see them as grace, but it's all grace to keep us from going further from God. Now, God may not send a whale for you, but he may do something else to bring you back to him. You should listen when he does that. So Jonah responds by getting out of that whale and getting on the beach and outwardly obeys God, walking through the city of Nineveh, and preaching the message that God wanted him to preach. And lo and behold, the Ninevites repent. And all of them come to faith in God. And God spares the judgment on the nation. Now, if you read the whole book, you know that Jonah is only obeying on the outside. He's not obeying on the inside. Anybody that's ever had children know that they know how to obey on the outside, but not the inside. Right? You tell your child to sit down. And they sit down and cross their arms and saying, now on the outside I'm sitting down, but on the inside I'm still standing up. <laughs> we do that in life sometimes. God, I'll do that. 
but I'm going to have a chip on my shoulder about it. All right, God, I'm going to lay aside that sin, but I'm still mad because I want it. I want it bad. Okay, God, I'll go where you tell me to go, but I'm going to be angry the whole time because I really want to go in the other direction. That's what we do with God. We negotiate with God. We argue with God. We do all these things, and we obey on the outside sometimes, and we disobey on the inside. But when Jonah even obeyed on the outside, when he stopped running from God, everyone around him was blessed. Remember how everyone went through the pain when he went through the pain? Now he's obeyed God by bringing the message to the Ninevites, and everyone around him is facing changed lives because of the message that God gave him. But on the inside, he's still miserable, still angry, still arguing, still unrepentant. Did you know that 99% obedience is still disobedience? 99% obedience is still disobedience. We can obey God a little bit of the way, but hold our heart back, and it's still disobedience. And that's why the argument keeps on going between Jonah and God. So pick it back up at the discipline part. Chapter 4, the first six verses, the Bible says, So then God appointed a plant. Here's what it says in chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, that is, that the Ninevites repented, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said was still in my own country, while still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than this life. I mean, think about this guy. I mean, we don't want to be best friends with Jonah, right? I mean, here's a guy that saw the repentance of a whole city, and he's angry about it. He's mad because he doesn't like those people. And the Lord said to him, do you have good reason to be angry? And Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord appointed a plant. There's God appointing things again. And it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. Man, I don't like this guy at all. I'm liking him less as the story goes on, and I've read through it several times. <laughs> Mad about the repentance, happy about a plant, extremely happy about the plant, excited the fact that he's not going to have the sun beating down on his head anymore. He likes the shade the plant provides for him. And God sent that plant to illustrate that particular thing in his life. But then God did something else. God appointed a worm. That's what the scripture says. In chapter 4, verse 7, God appointed a worm. And it attacked the plant and it withered. And then verse 8, God appointed a scorching wind. It says, when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all the soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. I mean, you're seeing this unfold, and you've got to be wondering at this point, how is it that God can use a storm and a fish and a plant and a worm and even the wind, and they all obey him, but only man disobeys him? Why is that? And, of course, the answer is that God has given us a free will, and we exercise it so often in adversity to God. We want that free will, and that free will is important, and yet we have the opportunity to say yes to God instead of no to God. 
We often just get it wrong. And we even get to the point, like Jonah, where when things happen to us in disobedience, we get angry. We get angry at the storm. We get angry at the fish. We get angry at the plant or the worm or the east wind. And then we get angry at God because all those things happen. We never seem to get angry at ourselves for being so stubborn, so pride, proud, so far, far from God. This is what's happening in Jonah's life. You know, God may not discipline you the way he did Jonah, but he always has a way of getting your attention. I think it's such an important thing in life to recognize that if he's doing that, then we ought to listen really, really, really well. Because even the small thoughts we have in life, the attitudes we have, and then the actual outward acts of disobedience to God are, are things that are markers in our life that we, we're, we're having some discipline that's going to be difficult in the days ahead because God does love us. But then the fourth reason that we should say yes to God is because the destination is ultimately surrender, that in the end, we're going to surrender anyway. In the end, we're going to surrender anyway. Now, at the end of the story in the book of Jonah, Jonah's still complaining and he's still arguing with God. And as I'm reading this over and over, I'm thinking it would have been so much easier for Jonah to say yes the first time instead of no the first time. What would Jonah's life have been like if he had said yes from the beginning? Whatever else we might conclude, it wouldn't involve fighting with God in any way. But here's what it says in the last few verses of Jonah chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. And God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. The Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I have not had compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and left hand as well as many animals? You know, surrender to God is inevitable for all of us sooner or later. It might not be in this lifetime. You might run your whole life from God, as Jonah may have done. But at some point, you're going to bend the knee. And you can declare Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what Paul said in the book of Philippians. Paul, who knew what it was to oppose God and God's ways, eventually said these words in Philippians chapter 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and underneath the earth, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. You know what that means? That means every single one of us at some point will get on our knees and we'll say, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It always ends one way or another in surrender. So why not let it happen now? You see, saying yes to God means that you can be at that moment of surrender while you're still on the planet to enjoy it. But until that happens, God peels back the outer layers of our lives, exposing everything on the inside so we eventually get the idea, here's the problem right here in my heart. And when I take my heart and surrender it to God, that's when everything changes. Have you ever experienced this? Have you ever experienced that moment of surrender? Maybe you're all by yourself and you realize that you've got personal and private issues in your life as you struggle with God and you're far more concerned about your personal comfort, just like Jonah was, than you are about the grace of God on the nations or the grace of God in obedience. 
And God is saying to Joseph, all the way to the end of the book, I want all of your heart. I want complete surrender from you. I want you to be all in in following me, not only with what you do outwardly, but also in your mind and your heart and your attitude and everything you do, I want you to be all in. You know, I read the book of Jonah and I actually get mad at Jonah. I get mad at him. I get angry at him. And then I realize I don't need to be too quick to judge because I'm just like Jonah sometimes. There's a lot of Jonah in all of us. You know, the interesting thing about this story that I think is so fascinating is that it is a non-ending. You know, the book of Jonah doesn't really end in a way that's definitive. We don't know exactly what Jonah did after God said those words to him. Should I have not had compassion on all those Ninevites? And so it really is left to us to provide the ending. Not that you can write scripture, but... But you can stand in Jonah's shoes and say, okay, if that happens to me, then this is how the ending's going to be in my life. This is what I'm going to say to God after I've run from God, after I've suffered through these detours and this discipline, and I know his way is always best, always better than I can possibly come up with. This is what I'm going to say to God in my life. And what I'm going to say to God is, God, you're right. I'm wrong again. And I'm choosing to follow you 100% from this moment forward. I mean, if somebody writes a book about your life, you don't want it to end like Jonah's book did. You want it to end with the story of you being faithful to the God who is faithful to you. Saying yes to God is the best possible scenario in your life. Now, overall, the theme of Joshua or Jonah, excuse me, is this, and don't miss this point. God loves and has compassion on all people everywhere. He will turn and worship him. And he wants to use you and I to demonstrate that love to people who don't know him. I experience this every, every week. But isn't this week a vivid reminder of how dark our world is? And how desperate and hopeless they are? And how important it is that we, like Jonah should be ambassadors for him in a world that is Christless and hopeless and has no idea how to deal with issues. But Christ does, and he's shown us, and he's called us. Saying yes to God, the most important thing in your life. In just a moment, we'll have an invitation. Our invitation stations will be lit up. The first time you say yes to God is the yes of salvation. Yes, God, I know I can't save myself. I know I can't, I can't do enough to have my sins forgiven. I'm going to trust what Jesus did on the cross to forgive me and give me the gift of eternal life. That's saying yes to God. It's humbling yourself, not being prideful, not being stubborn, and simply saying, I know I can't earn this, but I want to receive it by grace. And if you're in that place today and you're ready to say yes to God, we're ready to talk to you about that decision at our decision station. That's my first invitation to you. The second invitation is this. I would invite you to come to our guest reception room. Love to meet you. Love to talk to you about Cross City Church and its ministry. And the third invitation is take a card with you and invite others to come with you next week. Next week's Mother's Day. I'm actually preaching about the life of Abigail next Sunday, about this incredible woman that was in toxic situations, as so many are today. There's a lot of hope in the life of Abigail and I want to invite you to invite others to come with you next week. Would you stand with me as we have this closing word of prayer?
Father, I am so thankful for you. Your work in our lives, the work in the life of Jonah to bring him to that place of obedience where he could have gone all in with you. And we don't know the answer to that, but we know what we will do. And today, Father, I pray that each of us will come to the place of saying, yes, Lord, you have my whole heart, my whole future. You have my attitude, my mindset. You have my obedience 100%. And Lord, I know there are those in the room that have never given their lives to you as Lord and Savior. And Lord, I pray that'll take place right at the conclusion of this prayer. But that the rest of us, moment by moment, step by step, will continually surrender to you. Knees bowed, our mouths proclaiming Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we commit this to you today. Thank you for the life of Jonah that warns us. And Lord, I pray that we will say yes instead. In Jesus' name, amen.